Hello, listeners. My name is Brian Winston, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. Before we get started, I'd like to make an announcement about the survey. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministry waits for your participation for a listener's survey. Your opinion is highly valued. All gathered information will be for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries. It will go towards our ministry's efforts to share the gospel. You may participate by completing the questionnaire survey delivered to your address or go online at www.heartandsoul.org. Our return address for the paper survey is 12802 North 28th Drive, Phoenix, Arizona 85029. This survey ends on November 15th. We wait for your participation and thank you for your input. I recently read an article about a professional page-turner, and I thought the idea was worth our attention and good to share with you. Perhaps some of you already knew, but I had no idea a page-turner was a professional job. A page-turner is a person who turns pages sitting next to a pianist at a concert or a recital and turns the pages of the sheet music for the pianist. Thinking back, I remembered my children's music concert and saw a person who sat next to the young pianist and turned their music pages as they played their musical piece. We might easily think that a page-turning job doesn't require much qualifications and that anyone can do it. I also thought that a page-turner was just a pianist's friend who was helping him or her out. However, I learned that the job of page-turning has strict requirements. Obviously, one ought to know how to read musical notes, and they also have to be skilled in staying focused. Losing focus and not turning the page for the pianist at the right time can cause a lot of trouble for the pianist. That is why a page-turner must stay focused throughout the concert and make quick and delicate movements when turning a page so as not to disturb the pianist. It is very important for the page-turner to be on the same wavelength with the pianist. Sometimes when the pianist is not satisfied with their page-turner, the pianist will restrain the page-turner and they will turn the page themselves. Ideally, a page-turner should act as an extra hand for the pianist, reading his or her mind to know when to turn the page. Thinking of the requirements, a page-turning job is not for just anyone. But there was one thing that impressed me about the page-turner's job the most. It was about how one can be the best page-turner. What do you think makes a page-turner successful? Is it to turn pages without any problem? There is one more thing more important than that. Praise 
What makes a page turner the best page turner? To my surprise, it is when the pianist and the audience did not realize there was a page turner at the concert. A good page turner stays seated or hides away when the audience applauds the pianist at the end of the concert. The page turner giving all the glory to the pianist and hiding themselves so that they will not be seen. It is moving to think of a page turner's attitude. The page turner who knows exactly to whom the applause belongs, even though he or she has faithfully done the work and joins the audience in applauding the pianist. I believe the Christian's attitude ought to be like the page turner's attitude, an individual who would perform their calling sincerely and hide away after finishing the task well and giving all the glory to God and join the crowd applauding him. Shouldn't this be a Christian's attitude? The work that reveals God rather than me. The work that glorifies God rather than myself. Wouldn't you also want to perform such work? You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken. It's your
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Light the Night. Hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Tonight is one of those nights that I think it's just becoming increasingly popular in the world. And I think it is because it's about dark things. And, you know, they try to reinvent it some. But you do know that tonight is the high black Sabbath of the satanic and pagan calendars. October 31st is this evening is when they uh, observe uh, rites and all that are just unspeakable. And so we are thankful to be here and delivered out of darkness into light, into the Lord's uh, glorious gospel. And let's just have fun. Let's celebrate. And the clapping I love. So do whatever you want there. Now, I want to share something that redeems the day. Why don't you go to Psalm 24 to ready yourself? But there's something that redeems this day that we have got to know. Because I was thinking, oh, man, this is awful, you know. And then the Lord reminded me of something. And I thought, oh, wow, this is awesome. October 31st. It's a day of darkness for some, but it's a wonderful day for us. You know why? It is actually Reformation Day. Reformation Day. Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation on October 31st, 1517, when he took and he wrote 95 theses and he put them on the wall of the Wittenberg uh, Castle Church. And of course, he was later excommunicated in 21 by Pope Leo X. And we say thank you, Pope Leo, because you started something really cool. You started the ball rolling, and the the church of Jesus Christ has never been the same since. Martin Luther rediscovered the truths of salvation by grace alone. And the battle cry of the Reformation was uh, sola scriptura, sola fide, and sola gratia, which is solely the Bible, only the Bible, only faith, and only grace. And then there was another, two more that they would say, and one of them was through Christ alone, and the other that they said was glory to God alone. And so we're celebrating this. This is really our history tonight is we've been, uh, we're remembering the truth. I've been saved by grace alone, through Christ alone. It's the word alone that I'm following. And so we're redeeming our heritage from this day. Amen? So let's just grab onto that. The wonderful truth that Martin Luther discovered, rediscovered, was justification by faith alone. The thought, the truth in the Bible that we can be declared righteous by placing our faith in Christ. That God, apart from our works, God, apart from who we are, on the inside or the outside, God, in response to our faith, God declares us not guilty More than that, he declares us righteous. More than that, all the charges against us are dropped. More than that, we're acquitted, and that means there's not even a record of our sins. Wonderful gospel truth, isn't it? Awesome truth. Now, uh, many of you grew up in a church tradition where you recited the Apostles' Creed. And I wished I had of, because it's packed with truth 
And it is uh, a clear statement of Christian doctrine. I don't think anybody can be a Christian who can't believe what the Apostles' Creed says. This was one of the earliest, if not the earliest, statement of faith of the church, going back to the time of the Apostles or just thereafter. And this is what the Apostles' Creed says. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. But there's one more phrase I would add, and I don't mean to be presumptuous. But there's one more phrase in these last days that I would add, and this is it. I believe in the defeat of the devil. Can you say amen to that? That would be one more thing that we could add. I believe Satan will be destroyed. He will be destroyed by God alone. Jesus, we know him as the Messiah. We saw some of the names of Christ coming up on the uh, video that I loved it. I started clapping before it was after in the back row. They're thinking, who is this nut? Looked around, oh, it's you. (laughs) I'm not surprised. (laughs) But it's like, yes, I love the names of God and, and the names of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when it started writing them, you know, etched on the stone, I was thinking, man, no longer the Ten Commandments, they condemn us. But now the names of Jesus are a Savior who acquits us. So I just got excited. Anyway, Jesus is Messiah. We know he's that. We know that he is Savior. We know that he is a comforter. We know that he is a father. We know that Jesus is a king, Jesus is a judge, and Jesus is the father of mercies. But Jesus is something else. Look at Psalm 24 now. I'm going to look at Psalm 24, and we'll start with verse 7. This is an a Old Testament picture of what has happened in the... At the ascension of Christ is what many Bible teachers believe. And we have gates personified. We have a picture of the Son of God coming through and angels speaking back and forth to one another. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Well, who is the King of glory? Angels love to ask questions they know the answers to because they like hearing the response and they don't ask dumb questions like, where's Circle K? You know, they don't ask those kind of things. But they love to ask questions about the Lamb, about the Lord. And so the gates are opening, the King of Glory is coming in, and they say, well, who is the King of Glory? And then the other side of the angel says, the Lord, strong and mighty, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, 
who is the king of glory, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So look at verse 8. What I want you to do is I'm going to divide the rooms into two, okay? Now, those of you at the Northwest are saying, uh, yeah, that means some of you are split in half, okay? There's no middle aisle there. Same here. We have you guys right in the middle. There is an aisle behind you. So can you handle that? Shake your heads, Northwest. I can see you when you shake your heads, okay? Yes. Okay, so divide into half. Those who are on the left side, okay, your job Verse 8, your job is to say, who is the king of glory? So those of you on the left, can you say that? Who is the king of glory? Okay, you guys have that down. Now, the other side of you guys, on the right, you're to say, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty and battle. Okay, so can we handle that? So we got you angels and you angels, all right? Here we go. We go, who is the king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Oh, can you do it down in verse 10? Let's do the same thing. You guys, the same thing. Who is the king of glory, the Lord of hosts? He is the king of glory. Okay, now that was good. That was like, okay, for practice, maybe in a, in a calm church, okay? We're on a Monday night. Who's ever heard of going to church on a Monday night? There is no tradition, okay? So we can pull out the stops here. That's an old term for a pipe organ when they crank it up. One time we were at a church that had this humongous pipe organ. I mean, it was, went up three stories high. I mean, it had 64-foot-long pipes. Those are the really low ones. Those are the ones that you don't hear. You just feel. They make... They are like grinding a subwoofer under their heels, okay? That's how strong. And our little daughter, Emily, was there. We asked the organist, uh, used to be a professor of Leslie's, would you please play something for us? And so we're walking down the aisle in this huge church. He begins to play, and the organ began to swell, and the walls, you know, you could just feel the music. I mean, it was bass guitars, move over, okay? I mean, the pipe organ is like... Ah, you know, it's there. And so the music began, the music began to swell and swell. Emily was about this tall. She was a little kid. She's walking down the aisle and it gets so big that she just went down and she fell on her face. I should have. It was that cool. So pull out the stops, okay? We're going over here. Let's stand up. We're going to do it. Everybody stand up. Okay, it's verse 8. You guys are the question. You guys are the answer. Verse 10. You guys are the question. You guys are the answer. Okay, here we go. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Verse 10. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Amen. Amen. All right, be seated. The angels, they say that was awesome. Okay, but, but who is the Lord? We say the Lord is Messiah and Savior and Comforter and Father. Jesus is King, Judge, but He's also somebody else. And right here it says He is, verse 8, the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in what, gang? 
battle. He's mighty in battle. That makes our God a warrior. You say, I'm not so sure about that. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Because that's going to make us go to Exodus chapter 15. So let's jump back to the book of Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15, verse 3. I was with our worship team a few months ago, and uh, we discovered this text, and it just blessed all of us. It says, The Lord is a what? Warrior. The Lord is his name. I think of the song we sang here uh, some of the, at this campus. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our God. I see this as like a battle song as we're following the Lord who is a warrior, the Lord who is mighty in battle, the angels who admire him and they say, open the gates, open the gates, the king is coming in, the king who has the mighty victory. And if our God is for us, then who can be against us? And if our God is with us, then who can stand against us? And if our God is for us, then who can ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then who could stand against us? Who could stand against us? You see, the Lord our God, our Savior, the gentle Jesus that so many think about, he's a warrior too. He's a fighter. He's mighty in battle. In Zephaniah 3.17, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst a victorious warrior. He never comes back from a battle without winning it. He's conquered, and his greatest victory, of course, is his resurrection from the dead. Psalm 45, listen, it says, Put on your sword, O mighty warrior. You are so glorious, so majestic. In your majesty, ride out to victory, defending truth, humility, and justice. Go forth to proclaim awe-inspiring deeds. Speaking on of the Messiah, Your arrows are sharp, piercing your enemies' hearts. The nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. You love justice and hate evil. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than on anyone else. Our God, he has weapons. Jesus has weapons. Jesus has an army. Jesus conquers. As you look at Romans chapter 8, we see the application of this in our lives. And maybe on this Reformation Day, we can reform the way we thought about the Lord. We can think of Him now as our warrior king, our warrior savior. Romans chapter 8 The scripture says, verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. 
God's saying, how dare you bring a charge against my child? I have justified them. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You're going to condemn me, Satan? I don't think so. You're not going to get anywhere with my Savior who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril of sword? Verse 37. But in all these things, we, what does it say? Overwhelmingly conquer. Or it says we're more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. And I love this part. <clears throat> One of the first scriptures I memorized, it says, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. Okay, I just want you to camp on that for a second because it says death or life, they can't separate me from Jesus. Nothing happens in this life. Nothing happens in my death can separate me from Christ. But then he says, nor angels. Now, is there any angel of God that would want to separate me from Jesus? So who are we talking about? Talking about fallen angels, exactly. And so they may want to separate us from God, but can they? No. And then it says, nor powers, no principalities rather. Satan has a government, and his government, and, and he rules with, with different authorities, different people, uh, people, different demons leading over different things. Those are the principalities. Those are the powers. And they are organized to destroy you, to do everything they can. To rob you of the victory that you have in Christ. In the valley here recently, we've seen major uh, churches hit with attack, spiritual attack. Pastors going down and moral failure and sin and others' uh, uh, families being stricken with uh, sickness and disease. And people, we got to pray for the church of God as well as for ourselves. But it says nothing. Height, depth, powers of darkness, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're giving power to conquer. Thank you, back row. When it says, I just want to point this out, when it says we are more than conquerors, you see that? Literally it means we are super Conquerors, say that, super conquerors through the one who loved us. So when it says more than conquerors, the Greek actually says we are super conquerors through Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us victory after victory after victory as he shares his victory with us. And we want to live in that victory. A.W. Tozier wrote something I want to share with you. Listen, he says, although he is a dark and sinister foe, dedicated to the damnation of humans. I think he knows that it is of no use trying to damn a forgiven and justified child of God which is in the Lord's hand. So it becomes the devil's business to keep the Christian spirit imprisoned. He knows that the believing and justified Christian has been raised up out of the grave of his sins and trespasses. But from that point on, Satan works that much harder to keep us bound and gagged 
actually imprisoned in our own grave cloths. I thought about that and I thought, you know, what a picture. I'm, I'm, I'm alive, but many of us are like Lazarus, you know, we're still bound. And so it's times like this when we're praying, God, unbind him, unbind her, take off these things. You're alive in Christ, but the devil wants to keep the grave clothes on you and he just can't do that. We're given victory in Jesus. The Bible talks about us as being soldiers of Christ. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. We're soldiers. Our Lord is a soldier. Our Lord is a warrior. And we are soldiers as well. In fact, we're fighting a battle with Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying every speculation and every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The New Living Translation puts it this way. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. The apostle would say, For the word of the cross is to them who are perishing Foolishness, but to us who are being saved, can you finish it? It is the power of God. There's a battle for our planet. Jesus has bought back the planet, and now Satan is having to let go of his stranglehold, and the Lord Jesus is returning soon. He's going to come in glory and end everything, but first he's going to come in rapture. He's going to rapture the church. We're going to be caught up to be with him. In Revelation chapter 19, the Lord comes as a mighty warrior. If you just want to look at this, Revelation chapter 19. We move from the victory we have in Christ. He gained the victory, the mighty warrior gained the victory. He's given us super victory to be super conquerors now. And then he's coming back and he's going to end it all with victory. So it's victory to victory to victory. And I love this scene I love this scene. I know this has got to be a part of the Bible that Satan hates. This chapter and the next have got to be his worst nightmare. He did everything he could to keep this from happening up to the day Jesus died. And then when Jesus died, then he went down and made proclamation to the spirits in prison and he declared his victory. I would have loved to be down there. I would have loved to see that. Victory. Victory. And then he rose from the dead and he peered to all. I mean, can you imagine? I just love it. I like Keith Green's song. You know, hear the bells ringing. Maybe some of you, who's Keith Green? Um, Look at Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heavens open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. 
And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. It sounds like what we read in the Old Testament, doesn't it? The Lord our God is a warrior, Psalm 45. He's going forth to take, he, he's going to judge. He's a faithful judge. And his eyes are a flame of fire. And upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. His eyes are like lasers. You don't look at them. They'll destroy you. Not us. But the wicked will be destroyed by a look. He has a new name and is clothed with the robe dipped in blood. He's coming. It's going to be a bloody battle. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations And he will rule them with an iron rod, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of Almighty God. You know about winepresses? You know, in the ancient days, they put the wines in, and then they would begin to stamp the grapes until the juice came out. And this is the picture. He's coming to this world, and he's going to crush down sin and evil. Verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. And then an angel comes and the angel calls for all the birds of the sky to come and get ready for a big dinner. Because you're going to be a lot of dead things. And then in verse 20, we have uh, some POWs. And the beast was sealed. Seal, seized, rather. That's, say, uh, that's the Antichrist. And with him the false prophet. Ah, they caught both terrorists, didn't they? who performed the signs in his presence. And they were thrown alive into what? The lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword and they came from the, that came from the mouth of him. And then in verse 20, chapter 20 rather, it says that Satan is bound for a thousand years. He can't do anything for a thousand years. Earth is blessed and prospers. But then Satan is released for just a little time. And it says in verse 7, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Verse 9, And they will come up on the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire comes down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I have to say what? Amen. They deserve it. He deserves it. I don't know how he reads this. I know he knows the word much better than any Bible scholar has ever known it. He quotes it. He quotes half-truths. He uses the word to deceive people. But I don't know what he does with this. I don't know what he does with knowing that, hey, you're going to make one last attempt. I have no clue. But we know the end of the book. We know the end of the book. The saints live with Jesus. Satan is defeated. The mighty warrior has conquered. And I wonder, I just wonder if his battle cry isn't, it is finished. You know, that, that works, doesn't it? It is finished. When he rose from the dead, the mighty warrior, it is finished. When he comes back, there's the shout. The Lord will come with the shout and with the voice. Of, and I just wonder if his shout again isn't, it is finished. 
as he comes to pick up his church. And I wonder if again the Lord doesn't return on that white horse. And I wonder, just holy imagination, if maybe he doesn't shout one more time. It is finished. The battle has been won, saints. Let's go forward. One of the ways we do is we go forward with the sword of the Spirit. We're warriors too. And we use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And there are times when we just have to approach the enemy and we pray the Word, we use the Word. Another way that we attack the kingdom of darkness and push it back is through prayer. We pray and we say, you know, in Jesus' name, we're in His authority. Why are you doing this? Whose authority do you have to do what you're doing? Aha, uh-huh. the mighty warrior, the king, the one who's gone through the gates. Oh, we'll back off. Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. Draw nigh unto God and he'll draw nigh to you. We're more than conquerors. We're super conquerors through them and through him who has loved us. Pray. I was listening actually to a song that we sang as a kid and I, and I just, the words were getting to me. I thought, these are awesome words. I want to share them tonight. With the understanding that we're talking about, we are Christian soldiers. We are in the battle with our Lord. We're not talking about some kind of jihad, you know, or anything like that, except that, you know, we know we're in a spiritual battle and we have a real enemy, Satan, but we're going to go forth in Jesus' name. We're going to take ground from him and we're going to do some of that tonight. But listen to the words, a familiar song written way back 147 years ago by Sabine Baring Gould. He wrote these inspiring, truth-filled lyrics that urge us to press on in our battle against the evil one. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe, forward into battle. See his banners go. At the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices, loud your anthems raise. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we're treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. Crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the church of Jesus constant shall remain. Gates of hell can never against the church prevail. We have Christ's own promise that cannot fail. Onward then ye people, Join our happy throng. Blend with your, yours our voices in the triumph song. Glory, praise, and honor unto Christ the King. This through countless ages, men and angels sing. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching into war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Amen. Lord, it is our joy to be marching alongside with you, our warrior king. The Lord our God is a warrior. The Lord of hosts is his name. And we march from victory to victory. Tonight, Lord, in prayer and praise, 
push back the darkness in Jesus' name. Save souls, break chains, open eyes, set captives free. In Jesus' name we ask, anoint the rest of this time we share. Everybody said, Amen.
This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their life. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999 and the email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Following is the program called Questions from the Bible. Hello, everyone. This is Susan Holtgrew, your host for our program Questions from the Bible. Was there ever a time when your heart felt as if it was on fire for something? or of an event that left you with an intense emotional feeling in your heart? You may wonder why I am asking you this. It is because in the Bible, there are passages that describe this feeling, and among these passages is one we will be studying today. Let's turn to the book of Luke, chapter 24, verse 32. It states, They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? This was a question that two disciples had asked one another on their way to Emmaus after Jesus was crucified. As I mentioned recently, not all questions that are posed in the Bible are meant to be answered. In a previous broadcast, we studied the question posed from the serpent Satan, where he states, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It is not that Satan did not know the answer to this question. Instead, he posed the question to plant doubt in the minds of Adam and Eve. The question the two disciples asked on the road to Emmaus was not asked because they did not know the answer to this question, but they asked it to confirm what they had just experienced. They wanted to confirm to each other that their hearts became filled with fire-like heat after having spoken to Jesus, who had explained to them the scriptures and shared the message. This feeling was very different from the feeling that they had when they started on the road to Emmaus, because in verse 17, it says, they were both looking sad. Why were they sad? Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35 talks about this. Jesus asks them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? The two disciples told him about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his death, and the disappearance of his body. Although they had left Jerusalem, their fears and anxieties regarding the events of the crucifixion and everything that had happened filled their minds. 
They were filled with despair and sadness because they had followed the Messiah and felt that his death was meaningless. Can you imagine the situation that these two disciples were in? They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, their Savior, but when he was tortured and died on the cross, it was very difficult for them to understand why he allowed himself to die, and they fell into despair. Perhaps the Messiah that they were expecting was to be someone who was a great political figure that could rule the world with many great miracles, or someone who would establish his kingdom and drive Rome out of Israel and free the Israelites from their oppression. This is why they could not understand why Jesus was tortured and killed on the cross. In verse 25, Jesus says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. And in verse 27 states, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus spoke to them about all the things in the Old Testament that pointed to him and how he had fulfilled many prophecies spoken by the prophets. Perhaps he explained it in this way. When Abraham was about to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to God, a ram suddenly appeared in the thicket close to them. That ram was symbolic of the lamb being sacrificed to die for our sins. The blood of the lamb during Passover, written in the book of Exodus, was a symbol of the pain and torture that I would suffer. After Jesus had finished talking to the two disciples and explained the scriptures to them, they realized that Jesus came to die for their sins, conquered death, and that he is God. When they realized this, their anxiety, fears, and sadness disappeared, and instead their hearts were warmed. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures? Their reaction when they realized that Jesus really was the Messiah would have been exciting to see. Although they were headed toward Emmaus, they turned back to Jerusalem with their hearts on fire for the knowledge they had from Jesus. Their hearts did not burn because of the conversation they were having amongst themselves, nor did it burn when they were talking about their feelings to Jesus. Their hearts burned when Jesus explained the scriptures to them and the need for Jesus to be the sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of the world. Have you ever experienced anything like this? When you heard the message of Jesus Christ and wanted to be his witness, was your heart filled with joy? Were you on fire for him? If our hearts are cold right now, we need to lay down our thoughts and words and hear Jesus. Although we cannot see Jesus physically, as the disciples who were on their way to Emmaus did, Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will help us realize and understand the Scriptures. When we fellowship with one another as we follow Christ, just like the two disciples who were on their way to Emmaus, I pray your testimony will be, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? 
I hope all of us will have hearts on fire as we learn the scriptures and witness for Jesus. This concludes our program, and I look forward to speaking with you again in our Questions from the Bible series. Yes, it is.
I think in order to be a good page-turner, one should have a humble heart, and the individual ought to have exactness to know what to do and be focused on it. If the page-turner thinks that the pianist did a good job because he or she turned the page at the right time, or thinks that they ought to receive the applause along with the pianist, then they are not qualified as good page-turners. Jesus' disciples ought to be like the good page-turner. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus spoke to the apostles who were asking to increase their faith. I will read from Luke chapter 17, verses 5 through 10. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But he will not say to him, prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink." He does not thank the slave because he did things which were commanded. So you too, when you do all the things which were commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves, and we have done only that which we ought to have done. We can now know what a strong faith is by how Jesus answered his disciples who asked to increase their faith. And what is that? It is to be like the good page-turner whom we talked about earlier today. We are not worthy or have reason to be thanked for what we do. We just do our jobs. However, sadly, we see ourselves wanting to be recognized and applauded and be glorified more than the pianist standing in the center of the stage. But we have to remember, the pianist is the performer, not the page-turner. The page-turner is merely working for the pianist. Think about the parable that Jesus gave. Jesus said it only requires a little faith to command the sycamore tree to be uprooted and to be planted in the ocean. Why is that? How is this possible with a little faith? It's because Jesus is the subject of the miracle. It is not I who accomplishes the miracle, but it's the faith 
trusting that Jesus can perform the miracle that will enable it to happen. But the truly big faith is to have a humble heart, which is more difficult than performing a miracle itself. Is that not the mind of a servant who worked throughout the day and then attends his master at his meal thinking, I am such a good servant, now my master will acknowledge me. But to have a humble heart, knowing him and knowing who the true master is, that is truly big faith. So how big is your faith? If we still desire for others' attention and want to reveal our work and want to be applauded and commended, then our faith will still be a small faith. I hope that we can increase our faith by having a humble heart. My wish is that our faith will grow where we can be used to reveal God's glory. And when His glory is revealed, we will hide away and give all the honor to Him. May we all increase our faith this week as we do our Lord's work. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. Thank you for joining me. I look forward to speaking to you all again next week. Have a wonderful week, and God bless.